Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my squire, Mr. Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I I take objection to being the squire. (laughs) I am the once and future king. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, see, there you go. Larry, I'm excited at all the friends we've been making through this little podcast. People are definitely listening. Oh, yeah, for sure. And our friend lists are merging, which is scary. Yeah, I know, right? That's crazy. So we have a guest star today. We do. Yeah. So Janine Doc Kruger, you're going to hear me call her Doc because that's how I I refer (laughs) to her, uh, has presented at Comic-Con. She translates medieval texts into urban accessibility. She is into comics and anime, and she's got a podcast that she's developing called Poeticus Flex. Is that right, Doc? That is right. We're going to be exploring um, everything nerddom and pop culture through poems. I love it. I love <laughs> I love everything about Doc. And if you haven't heard her um, her deliver some poetry, you are missing out. Uh, okay, so question: We let our guests choose the topic or choose the movie, and I'm just really curious why the Sword in the Stone. Okay, so when I was in high school and we were reading, you know, like um, Shakespeare, I was, I mean, of course, I I did the hood version of translations, but I was the translator for the whole class. So we would read a passage and then everyone would look at me like, okay, what is this about? And I'm like, her uncle is with his, you know, I'm like doing the whole (laughs) breaking it down, this love triangle stuff. But since then, um, sort of medieval texts and, you know, anything that was kind of convoluted language, I was able to to translate it and get into it. So I love the stories that are around the Arthurian legends. Um, and that's, that's pretty much what pulled me into this particular movie. My kids loved it when they were younger. Um, I've rewritten um, some Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, uh, some Gowan and the Green Knight that's, you know, part of the Arthurian legend. So awesome. it's just my love. That, that vein is my love. <laughs> I love it. Um, So we're going to start today with some key facts about this movie. Um, We have, so it was the last, uh, Sword in the Stone was the last animated film released in Walt Disney's lifetime. Mm. And um, there are a couple of actors that are really interesting to me. So Martha Wentworth, she is both Madame Mim and she's the older lady squirrel who I think has, is just fantastic. Um, (laughs) Sebastian Cabot is the voice for Hector, and my kids were going, wait, we've heard his voice before. He's Bakira in the Jungle Book, and he's also the narrator for the Winnie the Pooh series. So, and this movie really marks the departure from the high animation of movies like Sleeping Beauty, and it embraces this almost like a sketch style that we'll see embraced throughout the 60s and into the 1980s. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with the Sword in the Stone. Get the I, I am going to throw out, while, while, you know, I love Disney animation in general, and I love the Disney animation style, and I don't mind necessarily being with this particular type of animation for a bit, it does feel like this marks the end of innovation in Disney animation, um, up until we get probably till The Little Mermaid. Is, I would, I'd agree with that. Yeah. That sounds right. Which which one came after? Did uh, Jung- Jungle Book come first or after this? Jungle Book's before. Okay, because some of the same animation is used in Jungle Book and Winnie the Pooh and, and this one. Some of the same sequences of yeah. uh, 
when he was walking through the forest and stuff. And Robin so definitely, Hood as well. Yeah, so definitely more of a cartoony, you know, look than something that is, I mean, it's almost like a high, there's like a high animation and this sort of like sketched out animation, like with the the wolf that we have that's re- this recurring <laughs> theme, who's this guy, you know, who's, we see him and yeah, so sure. I'm rambling. No, 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 that's fine. I'll move us forward. So, oh, thanks. Every every week, uh, we t- we talk about the manish tana of a particular movie. And just for anybody who uh, has never listened before, the manish tana, uh, it's the opening of the first prayer, not the first prayer, but one of the major prayers of uh, Passover. The four questions, uh, and that the four questions begin: Why is this night different from any other night? And so we, the question that we're asking with every movie is, why do we start where we start? Uh, mm. This is sometimes connected to the inciting incident. Uh, so if our answer ends up being the inciting incident, there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes it's different. Um, Wart is now, I believe, 11 years old, 12 years old. Uh, we, we have not seen him uh, his life prior to this. Why is this the part uh, of why do we start the movie with Wart at this particular time in his life on this particular day? Okay. I got a couple answers for that. Great. I want to hear it. <laughs> uh, so for one, um, the opening scenes, we go into like the sword, we see the sword and the anvil, and then they do this montage of these are all the people involved. And then we go to um, a book uh, and I think throughout this whole movie, they talk about the importance of education and you, all these stacks of books and everything. So to establish it with a book like this is the means to to learn new information, um, I think that carries on throughout it. And then um, they start singing, which is like tradition medieval when, when they're going to tell a story, it's sung. So um, I think that adds to the era that we're in. It adds to like building up this legend. We see um, where we're going, even though we don't know anything about Arthur yet. We know that to become king, like you've got to get to this point. So then it's sort of like building that anticipation. Okay, when is he going to get to the anvil and the, and the sword and the stone and stuff? So that's what that's my first guess. No, the, 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 there, there are no guesses. There are only a multiple choice what for, uh, full of answers, all of which are right. I would oh. also say that Good. they start because um, it's Disney and it's for kids. Um, and everything before this, like they have to like chop up. Let me take this part, this part, this clean part, this part where he's not messing with his sister and this part where he's not doing. So like everything else in Arthurian legend where it could go awry happened before 12. Right. <laughs> um, so this so is once it's 12, you know, then we can. This is like the, the male Cinderella. Oh, for sure. Very much so. Uh, for sure. I, I would throw out that for me, the reason that we start today uh, is today is going to be the day that changes uh, uh, Wart's life forever. I think it is linked to the inciting incident. And the inciting incident is that uh, Wart falls into Merlin's house. And this is this is the Kirk meets Spock kind of moment. Uh, two people who are going to meet each other and change each other's lives forever. Uh, if it was yesterday, if it it, it's too early. If it's tomorrow, it's too late. This is that moment that we will always pivot back to. If this moment doesn't happen, we don't have a movie. 
Absolutely. And, and Merlin, that's, Merlin okay, knows what's going to happen. I'm sorry. Right. Merlin, no, no, no. He's like counting down and he's situating things like this is <laughs> supposed to happen today. <laughs> right. Um, so with Wart, he has this moment where he's, you know, he shot this arrow, right? And it doesn't, or, or his, well, Kay has shot the arrow. Wart throw, thwarts the uh, the deer being killed. And then um, we have to find it, right? He has to go and find it. And so there's this moment where we know that, we already know that the sword has appeared from heaven. It's this miracle in London town. Heaven's going to decide who's king. And heaven's going to pick someone who probably isn't very normative. And we're pretty sure that it's not Kay. And we're pretty sure that it's not Merlin. But we're pretty sure that it's going to be Wart. Just because of his, you know oh, wow, I, I saved this deer, but at the same time, I'm going to go and, and be responsible. So I think that's kind of, um, you know, the, and they also there's this talk of a dark age without law and order. There's all this irony about the the song about the strong praying, uh, praying on the weak. And the next thing we see is Merlin wrestling with a well, even though he has a lot of magic. So there's a lot going on, even before Merlin gets that sense that a special visitor uh, is coming through the woods, and who literally literally falls through the ceiling into his lap, right? Right. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, so let's take a look at the plot elements here a little okay. bit. So, as with many of the Disney movies that we've done in the past, uh, and w- will do in the past, the once and future Disney movies. Uh, I'll just keep saying that. Well, throughout the whole podcast, uh, this opens with, you know, the story of the book opening up and we're getting the one, you know, like the exposition being delivered in the terms of here is the story. Here's the exposition. We're not really seeing uh, that story, but it's being read to us more than anything else. There's a couple of uh, static visual images, but nothing, uh, nothing really starts happening till we get towards uh, war. I've already said the inciting incident uh, is the moment where Wart meets Merlin. And then the rising action is everything that happens up until we get to the climax of the movie. So it's it's often very uh, easier for us to say, well, this is the climax, and then we identify everything in between as the rising action. This movie is a little tricky, because if I describe to you that the climax is the place where there is the most dramatic tension, where the forces of good and evil contend, doesn't always have to be good and evil, but in Disney movies, it's often good and evil. If I was to say, here is the part where the stakes are at their highest, where where things can go badly, where would you say that is? And I think there are multiple answers here. So if we don't all agree, that's okay. We're, we're all right in our own way. Everybody gets their participation trophy. Ooh, listen. Oh, okay. So I would say that every time he is transformed, we get one of those moments. So I would say that there are multiple in this movie alone, but I would say that the biggest one is probably when um, Madame Mim is in the picture. Uh, because we see what what Arthur believes in, and he's like, "Oh well, Merlin is the greatest," and she's like, "Well, wait a minute, 
wait till you see this. And so um, we only we see the battle happen between them two, but then we also see um, the the belief system that Arthur has created um, in in who he wants to you know, follow and learn from, um, we have, we have that challenge. So I would say that one. I would throw out, uh, just to follow up on what Doc says, this movie does have a very episodic feel to it. Each sequence feels like we're going up the mountain and then we come back down the mountain. And then when we get to that place, we start going up the mountain again, every time he transforms. So I think you're right to see that there's a bunch of little mini climaxes. Uh, the one that you've identified as the major climax I would agree with you is a is a correct answer for the major climax. I don't think the movie agrees with you, but I'll agree with you uh, because uh, when we're talking about dramatic tension, we're talking about the forces of good and evil fighting. Madame Mim, of all of the characters that we've seen, most represents the forces of evil. It is arguably the only place where you know Merlin's power is in doubt. Right. Like Merlin, the stakes are there that Merlin Merlin might not come out on top. And there's some places where where we and Wart are genuinely worried for him. Uh, so I could see pointing to that as the climax. I don't think the movie thinks it's the climax. Oh, I think the movie thinks the climax is when Wart pulls the sword from the stone. I would. Mm-hmm. But, he, but but here's the thing. When Wart gets up there, we know Kay's not going to be able to pull that sword from the stone, but we know Wart's going to be able to do it. And we know heaven's going to open up and everything's going, you know, so I kind of agree with Doc because the, I'm, I'm on, I'm on team Doc, but I think the movie (laughs) wants it to be the, uh, the sword from the stone for sure. And I think, I I don't, I don't. And uh, here's my reasoning for it because um, I think if that was supposed to be the climax, we would have had um, a, a sequel for one. Um, and we would have seen the rest of the story because at the point where he pulls the sword out of the stone, he still doesn't even have faith that he's supposed to be king. He's ready to get out of there as soon as, you know, he's on the throne. He's like, wait, let me take out the back door or whatever. Um, <laughs> so I don't think that that's it. Maybe the movie wanted it to be, but um I'm just not convinced. Well, and I want to stay in this moment just a little bit because this is this is the stuff we live for here. This <laughs> is the moment that the movie has been driving us towards. I think we can all agree with this. The movie is called The Sword and the Stone. They call it out at the beginning of the movie. And we, we know this is where we're going. The problem is there is no dramatic tension in this moment. Andy said right. earlier, we know Wart can pull the sword from the stone. But we know that's why Mer- we the, the movie may not have expressly said it, but we do know that. And there is no force that he needs to overcome in order to do it. Right. There's no obstacle right. to him pulling the sword out of the stone. He just can. And it just is. And it's fairly effortless. He doesn't actually he actually. It's not a heroic moment. It's an important moment. It's a portentous moment. But there's no heroism in it. He just literally lifts up an object. And the movie also brings up the point, like, once they, they're like, they all start laughing at him. And then they're like, no, prove it. Let's go back over here. And so when they're about to prove it, 
then they're like, well, he did it once already. Like, it's loose now. You know, like when you open up a, a, a jar or something, I'm like, let me do it. Oh, I'm so strong. So, no, there is no tension. But the fact that they brought up, no, let somebody else try first. And then they couldn't. I think that was their attempt sure. at adding that. I'm going to give us a third option and then I'll then I'll let us move to characters. But I, I do. I find this interesting. The third place that I think we could identify as the climax is the fight between Wart and Merlin, the break between the two ah. of those characters. It is the place where this thing that has been has relatively been untested this entire movie, which is the friendship between Merlin and Wart, reaches its breaking point, And we are left with the question, can this wound ever be healed? Um, and, and it's a subtle climax and, and I don't necessarily know, see the movie as identifying it as such. Um, but, but like a relationship is broken and then mended. And we, we could argue that that could be the climax, either, either the breaking apart or the coming back together, uh, could conceivably be it. It's not my best answer, but I want (laughs) to, like, it's not the one I'd write the essay on. Right. I mean, it feels like that feels to me like the all hope is lost moment when Merlin and you know, they just part company. Well, you know, I wasn't, I'm not necessarily convinced of that either. Because to me, Merlin was not much of a help. Like, if that's the only (laughs) magic he's seen, but like, he's tripping over him. Like, he's, Merlin is clumsy. And even though he's seeing these things happening, for one, no one else has. Um, even when I watched this movie for the first time, I wasn't familiar with Arthurian legend. I didn't know Wart could pull the stone out. So it was like, okay, well, at least I know um, he's about to go, you know, where the the sword is. So I'm I'm moving forward in the movie, even though I'm like, it's okay if Merlin left. Merlin wasn't doing nothing. <laughs> I think this is a great place for us to segue to talking about characters. Let's talk about Merlin. And, and Absolutely. Merlin is at the top of our list. I have strong feelings about Merlin. Um, I don't know that I should go first. Uh, but, but well, how, about I, how about if I go first a little yeah, yeah, bit? How about if I take it? All right. So there are some great moments of irony where Merlin, um, his dialogue just doesn't really match the action. Um, so he'll say things <laughs> like, I happen to be a wizard. And he's like pouring tea into his beard, right? Or things just don't quite work for him. And he's struggling to pull the you know, the, the water out of the well, but he's a wizard. So like, why doesn't he just right. will? The and he's shrunk everything down to go into a carpet bag. So why is the will such a, a struggling, a struggle? You know, he's both all knowing and he's bumbling. I think you said it earlier, doc. Um, he's sort of this absent minded professor. <laughs> um, and he's a time traveler, right? right? He says, man can fly. I've seen it. So I have lots of questions about Merlin. Like if Merlin's a time traveler, does he know that Arthur's supposed to be king? Right? Is he sort of a prophet that's conspiring mm-hmm. with heaven and he doesn't let us know all about it, but his mission is to educate and he's seen how life is going to be. So is his mission then to educate Wart with the life lessons that is necessary to be king? And I do want to just draw one quick distinction here. We're we're sure. talking specifically about the Merlin in this movie. As opposed yes. to the Merlin in the Once and Future King, where I actually don't have questions, and they explain the time travel, I think, perfectly. <laughs> right. Um, which is just 
Merlin ages in reverse. He was a kid in the future, and he's growing older. But like it's, he's he's living life backwards. Uh, and maybe I don't understand that perfectly. Maybe no one can. <laughs> but this Merlin is a little more Doctor Who than yes. he is, um, you know, some sort of time traveling Benjamin Button in reverse sort of way. Right. Right. And I always picture the Merlin in Excalibur, which is kind of a trickster character. So then I question, uh, and, and I shouldn't pull that into another movie, but then I'm thinking, okay, well, is he really bumbling or is he just pulling this off so that, um, you know, Arthur has to take a bigger stand to learn, you know, what he's doing to, to get ah. coming uh, he's, He knows he's going to be great one day. But does he? But then I'm. I'm. I question. Does he really know he's going to be king, though? Like he knows he's going to be something, but is it king? So I don't know. I have to ask Great this: point. Did Merlin put the sword in the stone? Because because he should have. <laughs> he should have. But he gets so mad about Wart traveling to London that it makes me go, Merlin. Don't you know that this is where <laughs> Wart has to be? Because didn't they put a sword in the stone for him to pull out there? But but no, it does, in this movie at least, feel like those are two separate events. And Merlin kind of, sort of, knows what's supposed to happen. Like, he's got like 90% right. of the ability to see the future, but there's some really important details he is just oblivious to. Yeah, is it a window that sort of moves forward and he can only get so far with these visions? I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, but I, th- I think Merlin is one of those characters that um, it's like if he knows something, he just wants it to go in his direction like the way that he wants it. So I think when he saw him in those squire robes, he's like, oh, no, you're you're way too excited about this. You right. know, like you, you're shooting too low. You're going to be greater than this. Don't get comfortable wearing squire robes. Mm. Okay, and this brings me to my thing about Merlin. So this this movie we watched, the movie we watched last week, Doc, was Pinocchio. And so I've had this conversation in my head, these two movies talking to each other. And I talked about how, like, my big issue with Geppetto is while he's father, he doesn't do any of the teaching. He does the emotional support stuff, but he doesn't really prepare Pinocchio for the world. He's just like, here, give this apple to a teacher. I'm sure the other boys will love you. Goodbye. Um, and doesn't actually do the educating. Merlin does the educating. But I cannot help but feel that emotionally, Merlin is not the adult in the conversations with Wart. And once he gives up, he gives it to Archimedes. Right. Uh, He is is petulant. Like Mm -hmm. like, like when, when Wart is saying like, oh, Merlin, you're so wonderful. Your magic's so wonderful. Merlin laps that up like he's a cat drinking milk but when Mer- when wart says i do want to be a squire i'm this is the best that can happen for me and merlin's right. like you don't know but like merlin is out of control in that moment <laughs> he's 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 the child and i'm with what doesn't know know the things that merlin knows exactly right. and and but is that okay? So here's the question I have: Is that all a big ruse? Is that all a big? So we have this working theory here at our house that um, when we see the sword in the stone in London, it's covered with vines and it's forgotten, right? 
Right. And then they have their break and Merlin goes to Bermuda, right? <laughs> but then when we see it again, someone or something has cleared all the vines off of it. Yes. So does Merlin really go to Bermuda? And this is an elaborate ruse. Or is he clearing the vines from the stone because he's seen the future and is in, and needs to know that Wart's, you know, I, I gotta is, tell is you, that what he's doing? Wart has no idea what someone from Bermuda dresses like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Merlin, if it's a lie, he has committed to the lie. Oh, uh, man. That, that outfit leaves no question to me. That he's no. gone to the 20th century to Bermuda. <laughs> um, I I don't I don't know like like that's my exhibit A on that one. I, I okay. I, I understand what you're saying about the vines, but I would um, I would lean towards what they do at the Olympics, where oh everybody's coming here, let's get it cleaned up, and I think maybe they cleared the vines. Ah, uh, maybe that's I mean, it. The whole purpose of the tournament was to decide who was king since nobody could possibly pull the sword. So I don't know. Maybe they just cleared it so that everybody take a look. You see what y'all didn't do? Now let's go over here and fight. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah. All um, right. Let's so, move on to let's move yeah. on to Wart. Wart seems grateful to be taken care of. He's good naturally. He good naturally accepts the hand that's dealt him. And then there's Merlin who wants more for Wart than he seems to know he can have. Right. Yeah, um, but but War, I think what we're supposed to key into with him, he's a hard character to get a hold of, partly because he's in this state of becoming, but uh, also mm-hmm. because there isn't a clear flaw to him. There's a flaw in his circumstances, but I don't know that there's a clear flaw to him as a character. Um, that he needs to overcome. He doesn't have the ambition. Uh, maybe maybe he's idolizing what everybody else is idolizing, brawn over brains, and Merlin's got to teach him that. But that is about more about values than it is about personality. It's more about the culture in which he's been ra- raised in, I think. I don't know. I think he's got a... There's this one great line that he has um, that indicates where he's at mentally, and I think that's his flaw. It, Which it, line? He'll, he'll say things like, I'm an orphan, a knight must be given a proper birth. Yeah. So I can't I can't want things. Even if I wanted to be a knight, I, I can't want that yes, because I'm is. an orphan and this is what I believe orphans to be. So that's something that I think is I think Merlin challenges in him. I, I, I would agree with you. I'm just I'm just saying that that's not personality though. That's the that's the expectation setting that society has placed. Who has he heard that from his whole life? He's heard that from Hector and he's heard mm-hmm. that from Kay, right? Sure. Like that's that's a that's a reflected appraisal that comes from them. Right. Um I so what So I, I, maybe flaw is strong. Maybe yeah. just saying he needs a a, a mindset shift. Yeah. Right? yeah. His main flaw is not realizing, uh, like, he just takes whatever, like, goes with the flow. Like, whatever I'm given um, with that idea of, of being a, an orphan. So he, he got whatever family he got. He got whatever uh, training he got. Like, he has to follow Kay around. Um, so I, I think right at the beginning when he meets Merlin and Merlin says, magic can't solve all your problems. And he says, well, I don't have any problems. Well, that's a flaw that he doesn't recognize that he has problems, for one, because at the point when he says it, he, he's got a problem because he was looking for, 
for the arrow. Like that was the first problem in the movie is he was about to get his butt beat <laughs> for messing up the <laughs> So he had a, he started off with a problem. Oh, but right. he didn't realize having any problems. But doc, that's so smart. Um and what I love about that that's so smart is what we're saying here is the problem is what can't identify problems. Exactly. Right. Um and that's really great because if you can't identify problems, you can't look for solutions. Um, I mean, oh, but man. you won't look for solutions oh. because you think everything's just fine. And, yeah. and so then when we get to the big confrontation with Hector, that's where Ward starts to say, actually, there are problems. Just because you're saying there aren't problems doesn't mean there aren't problems. Right. Mm, I, right. I, I think it's a little buried and I think it could be articulated maybe a little right. neater by the movie. But I do I do dig that. <laughs> well, and he has that moment where he's that that Cinderella doesn't get to go to the ball moment, yes. right? Where yes. he's, which I had not really noticed before this viewing, honestly. Where I was like, here he is scrubbing in the kitchen. I'm like, oh wow, right? He didn't get to go to London with everybody else. And then at the end, I was like, once he pulls the sword out of stone, okay, that's great. That's this big moment. But then afterwards, him being, you know, go back to wait a minute, I don't deserve this. This isn't for me. I'm ready to get out of here. We see Hector come in later and he apologizes to him, you know? Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's apologizing for something that Arthur never saw because he didn't recognize problems, like, dude did something wrong. Like, he wasn't acknowledging you and taking care of you or leading you in the right direction or whatever. He's apologizing for something. Right, right. And there's this great line, too, that indicates some growth in that vein. He says, you know, just because you can't understand something doesn't mean it's wrong. And just because, right. just, yeah, yeah, he gets, it's the speaking back to Hector moment. I love that. Right, right. And it's the, it's the first time I think he challenges Hector, which he's just, you know, which again goes along with this theory of like, I just go along to get along. And then all of a sudden Merlin's showing me something different. And now maybe, maybe things are going to be different for me. Maybe, maybe there is a problem here and maybe there's, I can be more. Although right. I will point out that this goes with a moment that makes me hate Merlin. Um, because yes. Merlin comes in and sees Wart crying and goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I know that you really wanted to be a squire. But deceitful, deceitful, <laughs> deceitful liar, Merlin. Because when Wart gets that chance again, you are not this kind of understanding uh, mentor figure. You you planned for Wart to get his heart broken here. And secretly, you're gleeful about it. hee, <laughs> hee. <laughs> he's, like, he's like doing a little dance in the tower. I did it. I stopped him from becoming a squire. Or, well, am I reading too much into that moment? Maybe I'm reading too much into that. Maybe, moment. but who no, cares? I get it though. I get it. <laughs> so, okay, Ar- Archimedes, who has the best laugh in Disney history um, after the flying machine gets tangled in uh, Merlin's beard, right? Oh, yeah. Um, that is hysterical. And we keep, we rewind that and play it, and play it, and play it <laughs> because it is delicious. But what about Archimedes? What do we think? I love Archimedes. I I do and I don't. Cool. I, okay, so for one, like you mentioned, Larry, that um, Merlin does most of the teaching. Um, and when I looked up Archimedes, like, where did the name come from? The Greek mathematician, physicist, engineer. Like, he he's the one said, read all of these books. I'm I'm kind of under the impression that it's Archimedes that taught Merlin. 
And so then I'm like, well, Ooh. we definitely don't need to be listening to Merlin. Archimedes is the genius here. <laughs> and when he, when Merlin gives him over to Archimedes, it's right when he's about to start flying. So who better can teach you how to fly than someone with wings? Yeah, I love when Merlin starts bird splaining to Archimedes. <laughs> bird splaining. <laughs> it's just like it's it's. I, I am completely with Archimedes in that moment. Really. Really, you're going to teach him how to fly. I mean, I'm an actual bird. Um, but but for me, I, I'll throw out to you, I feel, and maybe that I'm wrong, um, that Archimedes, as a teacher, is a better teacher than Merlin. Archimedes doesn't understand what Merlin's actually trying to teach, which is, which is not the, edu- the accumulation of knowledge, but the accumulation of self-knowledge, right? Uh, so, so when Archimedes becomes the teacher, he immediately teaches the alphabet because that's practical and and that's a language skill and that's useful. And 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 Ward immediately goes, "Hey, I'm literate!" Like 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 he gets <laughs> he gets something out of that, right? Um, I I do I do feel though that the thing that I in the end of the movie when Merlin has become petulant. It is Archimedes who is compassionate and empathic and really tries to meet Wart where he is, whereas Merlin is always trying to get Wart to come to him. Archimedes is like, let me get to you. Archimedes is the one who says to Merlin, you're telling him stuff about television and movies in the 20th century. He doesn't need to know that. Like you're right. just gonna confuse him. You're not. You want him to suddenly make these leaps. You gotta meet him where he is. And and I feel like Archimedes again and again grounds Merlin, and 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 helps to bring Merlin to Wart. And that's that's what I love about him. It's interesting that you said he's supposed to bring him where he is, or you know, go where he's at. Um, we see Archimedes go underwater to save him. Yes. Right. We, we, we've got the, the water, we've got the land, we've got the air. So like I'm seeing these elements happening. Um, Archimedes does go to each one of those areas. So I'm with that. Archimedes risks his life repeatedly. Repeatedly. Wart. Um, yeah. and, uh, and may never be able to express his affection. But when, when Wart comes in dressed as a squire and Merlin is pissed... Archimedes sees that Merlin is disappointed, but knows that the adult thing to do in that moment is to meet Ward emotionally mm-hmm. and be like, oh, I know you really wanted this. I'm 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 going to try to be happy for you, even though this isn't what we wanted for you. Right. Right. But uh, does he know what we wanted? I don't know. I don't know exactly how much Archimedes knows. I'm always taken aback by the fact that Merlin leaves and leaves Archimedes behind. It always surprises me. Yeah, it is kind of surprising. You wouldn't see um, Jafar leave Iago, right? No. No. That wouldn't happen. He goes everywhere he goes. <laughs> I know. But but at the same time, I don't see Archimedes as a pet. I see him as a companion. So it's oh. still weird for him to leave him, but not like I got to be responsible for this bird <laughs> i would say familiar is the word that i would use yeah. they're 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 combined in compact um it's it's you know that's the tradition of of um wizards and familiars ah. <laughs> so let's talk about ector ector sees war as a servant 
Merlin right. sees him as a potential king, and Wart's not good at either of those things. Right. But what do we think about Ector? I have mixed feelings about Ector, where I don't have mixed feelings about Kay at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's what I'm going to throw out. Obviously, I don't think we're supposed to like Ector uh, specifically. I think we're supposed to identify with Wart. Mm-hmm. I do feel that Ector is doing the best he can by Wart, all things considered. He speaks to the boy affectionately. He didn't ha- – like the character that I immediately contrasted him with was Vernon Dursley from uh, Harry Potter. Oh, Okay. And compared to how Uncle Vernon treats his ward, who showed up unexpectedly, Ector has is is not trying to make Wart feel bad about himself. Does not see Wart's potential, but sees Wart's potential as you could be squire someday, which is not nothing, right? He's never right. talks. He he list. He he doesn't necessarily hear Wart, but he sees Wart, and he has accepted him in a patronizing way into the family. Hmm. And um, I'm conflicted on that. Uh, but I don't I don't think Hector hates Wart the way that Vernon hates Harry. I don't think mm. that Hector is is trying to push Wart down. He just doesn't realize how much he could prop Wart up. I don't know. Ah, that's interesting. No, I think I think that Hector like has taken were in and I think that's commendable and like you said he's affectionate with him and wants him to do things like oh you could be his squire you know these are but he has these expectations for Wart that are just he doesn't let Wart be himself or see the potential in him he just he Wart's there to serve their family and Wart should be it's kind of that old notion of Wart should be grateful <clears throat> for um for what he's getting. You know, he was taken in. It's kind of that old idea of, of right. that used to be per- pervasive. Of, oh, you should be grateful somebody adopted you. Why and aren't you acting maybe, grateful? Maybe that's what he learned the most from that family. Because, I mean, that's the attitude that he carries through. Right. Um, I get the Vernon Dursley, too. Um, but like like you said, not that he hates him, Um but I feel like I'm 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 more with Andy here. I think he's all about propping his own family up first. Mm-hmm. So like he he was quick to suggest, oh well, then you can take um, Arthur, you know, as your your knave or whatever, who's going to help him out at the tournament. And Kay turns around, he's like, I don't want him. And so he's then okay. Well, then I guess that's not going to happen. Like he's all about what the kid wants. Right. Kay runs that. Well, except, uh, uh, just to disagree with you a little bit, Kay has been very clear he does not want Wart for this, that he would prefer to have Hobbes, but Ector wants it for Wart. And I think I think that's that's just a little bit of parental stuff there, that, that like, Ector's like, Kay, I'm sorry, you don't get the squire that you want necessarily, because yeah. I want Wart to be your squire. I want this for him. I just... As much as the movie doesn't want us to see Hector as an ideal parent, there are way worse Disney dads out there. Right. <laughs> way, right. way worse Disney moms. And, and I think I think Hector, if you asked him, is he doing right by Wart? His answer would be yes. I don't I don't think 
he would say, well, I'm keeping him alive. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. He's doing yeah. more than anyone else would have done in his mind. Right. That's yeah. true. Now, just because I'm, I'm familiar with all the other Arthurian legends, I don't, I don't, uh, maybe in Disney, he's okay. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a okay dad, Hector. But in all the other ones, Hector took in Merlin. I mean, took in Arthur because he was afraid of Merlin. Mm. But this one, Merlin's not scary. Not so. in T.H. White, I don't think. Uh, no? No. In T.H., I mean, maybe that's true of the Mallory. It's been a while for me and Mallory. But in the T.H. White, he takes he takes Arthur, and then Merlin shows up much later. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, uh, let's move on get to in. Kay? Yeah, move on to Kay. That's where I we mean, are. I'm assuming we all love him. <laughs> <laughs> What's not to love? He's so well-rounded. There's so much nuance and depth to Kay. What's the love? Well, he clearly doesn't have what it takes to be king. And the sword confirms that for us. So even heaven is on our side on this Yeah. Even, even Sir Pelinor confirms that for us. That's right. I mean, That's right. There's no one who thinks Kay would be a good king. I don't even really believe that Kay would win the tournament. No. I don't even think Hector thinks that Kay would be a, a good king. <laughs> but he's willing, he's willing to give him a shot. Yeah. Right, because I mean, you know, if everybody's got an equal shot and you're king, then that's going to benefit me, right? So, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, Kay is brutish. He's a bully, mm-hmm. uh, he, but he doesn't even have the charm that a Gaston has, right? Like no. Gaston walks into town, and yes, he's a narcissistic sociopath who who cares about nothing, but he at least knows how to get people to love him and to be a leader of men. If Kay were to walk into town, everyone would be like, oh, this guy again. No, right, right. No one right. would like him. No the difference one would follow him. Confidence and arrogance. Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. And there's a gap there for sure. He's loathsome. And and I I mean, we never even got to see any of his skills because when we finally about to, then he's missing the sword. At the beginning, he never makes the shot because it gets you know, thwarted. But then even when he's going to run after Arthur, like he's tripping over himself over Mm -hmm. the log and everything. So he doesn't seem fully capable of being a knight even. Well, I think Kay is there to prove to us that the medieval society we got is going to get us a lunkhead on the throne. Like like if Kay is even allowed to compete, if he's even in the running, something (laughs) is wrong. (laughs) <laughs> the moment, though, that is very satisfying to me is when Kay has to bow to oh, yeah. Arthur. Yes. That's oh, super, yeah. super satisfying. And it's so. who makes him do it. Yeah. That's right. That's Fair right. Enough. By the way. The mad, 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 Madam Mim. What do we oh, think? Gosh. What I do you think about her? About her. All right. Bring it. Madam Mims, um, if we look at everything that happens from the beginning we we see when arthur first gets um introduced they're saying he's scrawny and then he's there with k so we've got the small and the big and then every other um situation the the big fish the little fish uh the big bird the little bird like everything um and then we hear that the one song which song is it where um that's what makes the world go round mm-hmm. everything is in opposites so that's right. a continued theme that we see throughout but if 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 the opposites are what makes the world go round, then Madame Mims is one of those protagonists as well, because she's 
for one, we've got to see how strong Merlin is, but she is in fact the opposite, the good and the evil, the, the, we see their big battle. Everything was in opposites. Okay. I'm going to be the goat. I'm going to, you know, ram the butt or whatever. Like everything is okay. I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. So she makes the world go round. Women mm-hmm. make the world go round. Well, <laughs> I, I, I just want to, I, I think what you mean to say here though, not that she's the protagonist, but that she's Merlin antagonist right yes warts enemy she's merlin's enemy uh and and possibly the one one of well we'll get to it in a second can we say she's even merlin's foil i I would think we could Um, but right at the end when the sword finally gets pulled one of the other um knights there says it's the marvelous sword and then they get cut off by somebody talking but they call the sword marvelous and she's the only other thing in the movie that's called marvelous so Mm. then i'm like there's some importance here (laughs) well but she she may be like andy was saying she may be the foil to merlin uh merlin's answer to everything is magic can't solve all your problems and I think, uh, I mean, Andy, I think maybe. And she's like, oh, like, I think it can, right? Magic, not only can magic it, is her solution to everything. It will be right. awesome. And not only that, I'm going to delight in the gruesome and the grim, right? I'm going to take magic to a whole new level and make it serve me and be fantastic. Magic is the end in itself with men. Right. Right, because Merlin, like Merlin, he is willing to like, like we said, he's willing to pull water out of a well, right? She's not willing to do that. She would never do that, right? right. Yeah, she's all magic. She's, she's all magic, magic all, all the, the time. time. But she's also because of that smaller than Merlin, right? Um, not not greater. Uh, does what is Merlin she doing? That? What? Does Merlin know that? I think Merlin does know that. And here, here's, my, here's my answer. Where is Madame Mim? She's in the middle of the woods somewhere. Much like Merlin was in the middle of the woods. But Merlin was right. in the middle of the woods because that was where he needed to be uh, for, for Wart to drop in. Right? Right. But Madame Mim doesn't have a plan. She's not waiting to make herself useful. She's in exile. Right? Mm. She, she's not acting upon the world. She's not trying to actively make it worse. Like, okay, Wart shows up and she's like, oh, I'm going to have to destroy you. If Merlin likes you, I don't. But compared to <laughs> right. the other witches we've seen, <laughs> the evil queen, Maleficent, right? Madame Mim is is not active. Like, we woke her up when she was sleeping. Right. But she's yeah. she's got no plan. Her plan is... Is to respond. Is, yeah, and it's the game. She's all about the game. She even says so. Yeah. And, when Mer- and when Merlin loses that duel to her, he still cares a lot about her. You know, Which is interesting, this dance that the two of them have, it seems to be this dance between good and evil. Merlin doesn't lose the duel. No, 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 no. She loses the duel to him. Sorry. Oh, oh, God, Sorry. Okay. Other way around. Sorry. My bad. I misspoke. But, but he Andy, could have destroyed her. It's the end of the semester. We're misspeaking. Gotcha. <laughs> but what you're saying about him, Karen, uh, like he, you know, turns into the germ, gets her sick. But then he's also like, let's get you situated in bed, give you some Right, sun. right. He almost feels bad about being terrible to her, right? There. And yeah. then even before, um, even before their, their duel... Like, I think he fears her because I felt like he was running, like he came in as, um, 
what was it? He came in as a bird, right? And then he like right. took off and then comes back as Merlin. So he does fear her. Um, but then when they decide they're going to do the duel, he says, as you wish, after you. Like he's showing that chivalrous code too. So he's mm-hmm. like respectful around her. And it's that that's what makes the world go round. You were talking about that earlier, Doc, about like we have to have a Madame Mim if we have a Merlin. Ah, because yeah. she's they're the opposites. We that's they they literally their their energy back and forth is what's keeping the world spinning. I'm gonna throw out an argument to you. I enjoy Madame Mim very much, and I enjoy the movie that we've got here. Um, but there was another option other than Madame Mim. There is in Arthurian legend a famous sorceress and rival to Merlin, Morgan Le Fay. Like she's got. She's got name brand value, right? Like, 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 but we, we don't, we don't go that route. We don't go that route because the movie is not really about the war of magic here. We need someone who doesn't, who doesn't have, um, I want to say like the, the, the respect and the status and, and like the title. What we need Mm. is someone who can just appear in a sequence and be disposed of and never think of again. Right. Um, I have no doubt if we were to see Merlin versus Maleficent, that battle is a much fiercer battle. And I sure. don't know that Merlin wins that one. Mm. Right. Interesting. I don't, we don't yeah. have the respect for him. I enjoy him, but I don't respect her the way I do our other D- Disney villainesses. Now well, she's a little bit of a and, goofball, right? And if it was Morgan Le Fay, um, I don't know if they would agree to fight each other, learning from each other. And then they there's even stories where they were they had something going on. So I I, I agree. It's it would be more complicated. It would be a great movie. And it has been many great movies. It's just not (laughs) this movie. But I do I do think that we want to see someone. They've made the choice to have someone small here because someone who was too big would just overshadow everything. That being said, right. it's the most fun part of the movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about, well, another fun part is the lady squirrels, which I, someone, as my daughter said, someone needs to teach these girls about consent um, <laughs> because they're a little you too know, much. Like they were the aggressors. <laughs> they were the aggressors. That's right. Um, I'm not and Merlin this. And Merlin <laughs> doesn't protect Wart from the girl squirrel. No, and then don't. he gets a taste of his own treatment, right? With his, with his own that. squirrel. I was too. And But the sad squirrel, girl squirrel, heartbreak, that's rough. I, yeah. Merlin she is, is a just monster. crying her eyes out. Yeah, Merlin's a monster. He is a monster because he's the one who told us that squirrels mate for life. Mm. And when the heartbreak happens at the, like, when, when Ward is like, what do I do about this? This is a problem. How do I make it stop? Merlin's just laughing on that tree. It's going like, ah, ha, ha, boy, you'll have, it's not until it affects him personally with his own lady uh-huh, squirrel uh-huh. that he does anything. But then at the end, when the squirrel is crying, I'm like, Merlin, you did this. You well, did not this. would have fixed it. The squirrel who was getting at Merlin, his response to her was like, see, I told you I'm just an old man, you grumpy old man. And he's like yelling and like marching towards it, like to shoo it off and everything. Yeah. But then we see Arthur's response to, he's like, see, I told you I'm just a boy. Like he's much more. sweeter. Uh, yes. Um, so the difference there, it was like when, when Merlin 
you know, explodes later. Well, we've already kind of seen that growing up, you know. I do have one thing to say about Lady Squirrel. Sure. Wart doesn't know, but this is the best option for him, is female Squirrel. Because if you know your Arthurian <laughs> legends, he just never has a relationship as good as this again. I know. <laughs> his, his wife cheats on him, all kinds of stuff. He's I'm been just, searching, I'm just he's saying, been searching I'm just for saying. the squirrel again and again, and it's never her, right? I want that squirrel <laughs> dropping acorns on Guinevere for the rest of her life, because she still Perfect. loves Arthur, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> well, let's talk about music a little bit. We've got the Sherman Brothers, and we've got the, le- I mean, the beautiful exposition in the beginning, which is the Legend of the Sword and the Stone. We have Higgitus Figgitus. We have a most befuddling thing. We have the Mad Madam Mim, and that's what makes the world go round. And we also have a song that's sort of in there and cut, uh, which is called Blue Oak Tree, which Larry and I worked on a little bit in pre-production to learn about, uh, learn a little <laughs> bit about. But what what are you thinking? What are you guys thinking about the music? I have a I have a lot of issues with the music. Uh, so if you guys okay. have a for the mission for the music, I I, I should probably go last. But my, yeah, do you want to go first, Doc? No? Um, well, I, I had just done a little bit of reading up on that, and I just heard that Higgitus Figgitus, they chose that because they didn't want to do Abracadabra. They wanted to right. do it differently. Um, so the same thing, like you mentioned, Madam Mims, like they had to go different routes just to kind of change the story up. Right. This is not the Sherman's Brothers' best work. Um, and oh. I feel... I feel very strongly that what we're getting is a bunch of low-rent versions of stuff we, we've seen before. Higgitus Figgitus versus Bippity Boppity Boo. There is no comparison. Which is, like This is an imitation of Bippity Boppity Boo, and it's not as good. Um, the, the song... Um, uh, well, shoot, I had another one for this one. Uh, Mad Madam Mim, where she's like, I can be big, I can be small, I'm, like, I'm the Mad, 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 Mad Madam Mim. That is the low-rent version from Mickey and the Beanstalk of Fee, Fi, Fo, Fum, I'm the most amazing guy, the most amazing guy am I, where he becomes big and becomes small. But that song is also better than this one. I The, uh, the, the opening Sword in the Stone music I don't think is as good as the Sleeping Beauty opening music it just feels like the music in this movie says i know what the songs that are in a disney movie because at this point we've had a good 20 something years of disney movies let's try to give the audience what they expect from us as opposed to innovating new roads in music and to be very very fair to them i'm doing some research right as we're as we speak um, and somebody can correct me on this. They did some a song for the Absent-Minded Professor in 1961, um, and that's and the Strumman song uh, was a personal assignment for them from Disney. And they did "It's a Small World" in 1964. This is 1963, so this they may have been told on assignment, "Hey, make this sound like a Disney song." And uh, or re, hey, re, I can see a world where you know a producer says, "Hey, we need something that sounds like bippity boppity." Would you guys do Higgitus Figgitus? And they're like, you know, can you come up with something that kind of sounds like that? And they're like, sure. Now I like Higgitus Figgitus, but but yeah, these songs are not what we think of when we think of iconic Disney 
lyrics and songs and things that we remember for sure. <laughs> and I, I, I want to throw out here, I have like uh, a 20 minute like mini lecture stored up in me about what I want from musicals. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm going to try to give you the two minute version of it. Cause I don't think anyone wants my 20 minute version of it. But the, <laughs> two minute, the two minute version of it is, is why do we have a song in a musical? What is a song supposed to do? And for me, there's three answers to this. Three main answers. Number one, a song can move the plot along, right? Sure. Number two, a song can reveal something about the character that they would never say. Or three, the song might just be entertaining. It might be funny. It might just be enjoyable in its own right. And those are, for me, the three. It's more complicated than that, but this is my two-minute version of it, uh, <laughs> of my rant on this. These songs, they never try to use the songs to move the plot along. They uh, never, what about the legend of the sword in the stone? Come on. That, that, that is that is all about exposition. Okay. All right. It doesn't move the plot. It's not, it's no. not a story. Okay. Um, they never reveal hidden depths to the characters. And so all, all they're aiming for is, can we be entertained by them? And sometimes the answer is yes. But sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> and, and I want more. I, I want. I yeah, want. I mean, the, the, that's what makes the world go round. I think the song is definitely thematic. We've been talking about it right. this whole time. But um, and I think he's been saying it all along. Right? Yeah, it's. Yeah, agree. He's just now putting it to music. Like, if somewhere in that song, Merlin talked about his past, he talked about something, a mistake he'd made, or 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 something. Some, if he got personal with his mm-hmm. own life, then I'd be like, oh, that elevates this song to the point where, like, I now understand Merlin better. But, uh, but it never gets there. It stays on this pedagogical. Here's a life lesson that I'm I'm trying to put to music so that you learn it by rote. The song is catchy. I I, I sing to and fro. I was singing it right. in the shower this morning. But there's no <laughs> there's no emotional inner life to it. There's no passion in it, and and there is in so many other Disney movies. It's just absent sure. here. Yeah. It's sort of like just singing while you're in the shower. <laughs> you know, like they're just swimming along. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. That's what I got from it. <laughs> the other thing that I'll say about this, and this is, I don't mean this to be mean. I like character songs. If I'm ever, when I mean character songs, I mean songs that like are sung, like not by the character, sure. But by sure. Like, like a wacky character. Sure. When you have nothing but character songs. You start to long for something beautiful. Like uh, having interesting. a Merlin song is kind of fun. Having a Robin Williams song in Aladdin is kind of fun. He's not the world's greatest singer, but like it's fun. But if it was only Robin Williams singing and we never heard Aladdin and we never heard Jasmine, like it, it starts to feel Samey. And one day, ah. Andy, when we do Return of Jafar, which has not one but two songs sung by Gilbert Godfrey as Iago that are long oh songs, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna point back to that. I'm gonna be like, hey, hey you remember this? Once you remember is fine, the song. twice is too many. The once and final song. I love it. I love it. Let's talk about comic relief a little bit. Why is it important, do we think, to have 
comic relief in family films as screenwriters, as writers? Why do you need that? That I have an idea about it, but I'll let you guys talk about it. I think we, I, I think we need comic relief in every movie, okay. not just family films. Um, and I, I think one of the things I don't like in movies is not. Well, let's can we define comic relief a little bit, Andy? Because I think sure. that will help us out here. Sure, I think it's a moment where there's some high tension, and then all of a sudden we have a lighthearted moment or something that happens that lets us kind of almost pulls the release valve a little bit, and lets some of the pressure out of the out of the uh, the tension of the thing. I think that's the exact reason for it, especially with Disney movies, because um, Disney movies then become these teachable moments with parents and their kids after they're watching it, because. Kids always ask questions. So if you can refer back to some of those funnier moments, you remember when this happened? And then like it kind of just eases up that tension. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's necessary to be able to get like the, the basis of this story is a foster kid, you know, trying to figure out who they are. That's not the easiest thing to talk to about to a kid, depending on how old the kid is. But No, and it's pretty you know, dark, isn't it? I mean, it, yeah. it really is a dark story about a- off the the everybody's at war because we don't have a leader. Like, what are mm-hmm. we going to do? <laughs> right. And then heaven's going to pick this kid who doesn't seem to be almost like a David, uh, a biblical David who is kind of out being his, you know, <laughs> being the, the armor bearer for his, you know, adopted brother. Yeah. And then there's, you know, it just is, it's, it's dark. He's not really treated that well. And here's this, wizard that wants him to do these things and he doesn't really know what he wants to do and now there's this you know sword and people could get jealous and i think without the comedy it could get really dark really quickly and i would add not only the comedy being added in there but like you had mentioned when Kay is told that he has to bow like those closure moments are important mm-hmm. too I think the distinction that i just want to draw here is we're not talking about in the sense comic relief the idea of a character being designated as a comic relief, which is a thing that happens. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Dopey is the comic relief. He's there to be silly and to to make us laugh. But what what Andy's talking about and what Doc is talking about is the idea of just moments that provide comic relief as opposed to a character. And I think that's important in every movie. I think it's important in horror movies, in thrillers, in true crime, whatever genre, because human beings, a core part of our psychological defense is humor. It's why we have it. It's when you watch movies or TV shows or read books where everyone is humorless, where everyone takes everything really seriously all the time and no one ever cracks a joke I never connect to those people because when things are at my worst, I go to humor. Right. Um, I mean, I go to humor a lot anyway, but, but what I need to go to humor when I'm suffering. Right. And, and there is a character in this movie that you would say would be considered the comic relief. Is there one character? Well, I, I think that we yes. conceivably argue, go, go for it. My guess would be the wolf. Yes. Because we see him throughout throughout the movie. He doesn't really have any speaking parts, but uh, I think that they've they've juxtaposed that the wolf knows exactly what it wants, but never gets it. And Arthur does not know what he wants, but he gets it. Right, (laughs) right. 
And I was going to say the sugar bowl. That oh, sugar bowl yeah, that's constantly, good. Who's, who's constantly causing problems in the line, uh, who's constantly putting sugar in Merlin stuff. I don't know that he's actually a sentient sugar bowl, um, but uh, they certainly seem to be sentient. Um, <laughs> but there aren't. You could also argue to a degree Madame Mim is a comic relief. Yeah. Um, you, hmm. you could you could make that argument. Uh, Archimedes, maybe? To a degree, Archimedes is more grounded than that. Yeah. Ar- yeah. Archimedes Archimedes takes himself seriously, and it kind of... He's, he's in the grumpy tradition. He's in the grumpy ah, tradition of, sure. uh, I, I do have this serious side to me, but sometimes you have to poke fun at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think this movie goes heavy on the comic relief. I don't think there's any one character who's like throughout the movie we're supposed to be giggling. There, there's oh, the Olaf wolf. in Frozen is a comic yeah. relief character. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think we have an Olaf here. Well, the wolf, but nobody thinks about him because he doesn't have a speaking part. I, I agree with Doc. The, I mean, he is kind of a wily e. coyote type, right? Yes. That, that no matter what he wants, it's gonna, it's not gonna work. And it's, there's the gag, and it's funny. And we all laugh and, you know, go on. But it really does pull the release valve. The wolf always shows up in a moment of high tension. And it sort of increases the tension, but then it doesn't work out the way it should. Right. Right. So, yeah. All right. Protagonist problems. Who is the protagonist of this movie? Oh. Well, I, I think this one has a clear protagonist, but it's not mm-hmm. perfectly executed. Uh, the character that we're looking to see change and grow is war. Yes. Right. Um, and I think we can point to moments where we see he changes and grows. Mm-hmm. But uh, as Doc pointed out earlier, Wart has no antagonist. Right. Uh, Kay arguably could be, but Kay doesn't do anything. And Wart doesn't overcome Kay. Uh, Wart is actually in the process of becoming the protagonist of a sequel movie. Yeah, um, but but he, <laughs> he isn't he isn't there yet. And right. I, I don't. The other argument that you could make, uh, well, I mean, you could argue Merlin is the protagonist of this, right? I mean, I I think I think that's a weaker. That'd be a little weak. However, we do start the movie with Merlin, right? We I mean, start- that's that is. That is mm-hmm. always hard for me in these in these movies. Is we start with somebody, and I want to get invested in that person, and then we start. You know, if it changes, then I'm like, okay, well, why did which this is shift? difficult because for one, looking at Arthur, he's not even invested in himself. No, and then you have Merlin that's bumbling everywhere. You know, right? So then it just makes it a little bit more confusing it's it's divided because merlin is the one who has the conflict with the with what is probably our most major antagonist in this movie um which is madame mim and Wart doesn't but i don't Mm -hmm. know that merlin grows and changes at all and Wart does um i i honestly feel like if you told me this was the first movie of a trilogy or better Mm -hmm. yet if you told me this was a tv series and we got we got like through the pilot of the TV series and we're going to go further from here. Uh, it's, it's, he's, he hasn't, he hasn't grown into his protagonism yet. No, not yet. Like no. we see it right at the end and then he's still questioning it. And so we still William what to do. 
Merlin says, yeah. we're going to get you a round table. Would you rather have a square one? But but Arthur, Arthur at that point, he's Arthur at that point, doesn't yeah. have a plan for going forward. Uh, he's king in title, but he's not yet, he has not yet embodied him. He's not become the hero that we know he's going to be. Right. And then the name Wart, a wart can be removed. So we see that Wart is no longer Wart. But now what is he? Yeah. Yeah, he's king, but we have not seen him as king. I think I think this the filmmaker in me wants to put the scene with to just do an edit <laughs> and put the scene <laughs> with Wart and Kay at the beginning with the deer, move it to the front, and then and then we go to the woods as he's looking, and then we meet Merlin. Yeah. Um, pulling up the, I mean, that solves it this problem, help. I think. I help. think it does. I think it does. The other thing that we could do is we could, Merlin doesn't have to come back while Wart is a kid. So mm. we could have Wart pull the sword from the throne and we could jump in time 10 years. And now Wart is Arthur. And we see that he's like incorporating the lessons that Merlin's gotten for him, but he needs his mentor back again. Right, right. right. Like, now, now he needs to, like, like there are questions being asked of him, and he's got a good heart, and he's been doing the best he could. We, we need to see him, we need to, we need to see him developed. And he, yeah. he's still developing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, maybe if it, when it jumped forward and we see Arthur as king a little later, maybe if there was something that Merlin said early on, like he um, saw this in the future and then we saw that play out. So then he's got this realization, wait, Merlin was telling me the truth. Mm. You know, so I do need him. You know what, guys? If Merlin was, if Merlin was the protagonist of this we could see the story from Merlin's perspective where maybe he's time traveling back and forth, meeting future Arthur and then going back to young Arthur and right. like, and like, like fixing the time stream in a doctor who kind of way. And that would be fun. That would be fun. <laughs> yes. All right. I themes. Can't. What do we got? What are some themes of this movie? Women make the world go round. I love and, it. And don't try to understand them because it's befuddling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad okay. that you guys see this as a feminist text. I, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest. I don't, but but I'm here for uh, it. If, if you if you really feel that way, um, I mean the the theme is articulated over and over again, which is brains over brawn. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think too. There's a right to ambition, uh, and then worthiness and fate, and that heaven chooses those who are worthy of character. Right. Education more important yep. than power. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. Knowledge and wisdom is the true power. I think one of them said that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do wonder, you know, in the traditional Arthurian legend, uh, the reason that Arthur can pull the sword is he's actually the rightful heir to the throne. Right. Right. But that's not given to us in this movie. We're not. We're not given right. that context. And I wonder if we're supposed to say the reason that Wart can pull the sword from the stone is he's. He values his education. He's the the lessons that Merlin has taught him has prepared him to be the one to pull the sword from the stone. That it was a potential that Merlin unlocked. Mm-hmm. And his intention was to fix a problem. And you know, it wasn't like I'm gonna take this sword because I'm gonna go fight with right. it. It's you need to make things right and help somebody else. So he's definitely more noble. Yeah, for sure. He's the only one who tries to pull the sword, not because he wants to be king, but because he wants to help someone else. 
Right, yeah. right. That's so great. I mean, he, he, yeah, he goes to get the sword to help Kay, who isn't deserving. I mean, it's and really. At first, he's like a little scared, and the light comes down, <laughs> and, he's like, and then you hear Archimedes, don't do it. Wait, you, ah, <laughs> be careful. It. And he's like, no, I got to do this. I love it. Yeah. All right, pitch time. So we've made lots of there are lots of movies about King Arthur. Yes. But what would we do with this? Would we reimagine it? Would there be a sequel? Would we have a prequel? What do you I guys have already reimagined. Pitch it, Doc. Pitch well, it. For, for one, my uh, thesis <laughs> for my MFA was Green, uh, which became a musical that was written like Hamilton, hip hop. Um, so my, I have some of, of the Arthur story just because you have Morgan Le Fay in Gowan and the Green Knight and everything. So I had to tell some of that, that exposition. And in telling that exposition, um, in, in what I wrote, my knights are like a fraternity and they step against each other like that's how they battle. So it is reimagined, but more of an urban telling. Love it. All right, so my answer here is I did some research into Madame Mim, uh, and she is the breakout Disney star here. She goes on to do other things uh, in the yeah. comics, in the Disney comics, not in Disney animation. And there are two things that I found out, one of which is less interesting, is that she's best friends forever with Magicka Dispel from DuckTales, which... Okay, what? That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> and I almost made that my pitch about the two of them living together, sort of like like two sassy witchy ladies, um, <laughs> one's a duck and one's... Uh, but, but instead, I'm going to pitch based off of the other fact I found out about her, which is she fell in love with Captain Hook from Peter Pan. What? Uh, I want... I want that story. I want Hook and Mim on the Jolly Roger. Uh, Mim is in love with Hook and is giving him the boost that he needs to maybe finally take out Peter Pan. Uh, And maybe, just maybe, Hook learns to love her back. And Mm. uh, I I would like to see them living miserably ever after together. Because it won't be, it might be a passionate marriage. It won't be a happy one. But no, I want them to split up, and then she goes and gets a place with with Maleficent and Tinkerbell, and then they do some Golden Girls witchery. Golden Girls is, is exactly it. They're all sitting there. They pull out the cheesecake. Stan comes to the front door, and they curse him. And then it's just great. And we see the teapot of sugar that she stole so they can have that cup of tea together. I love it. Thank you for being a fiend. <laughs> I can't top that. I can't top that. No, no I had Ma- I had Madame Mim discovering time travel through uh, Merlin's books. She goes into his place while he's not there, Ooh. and she discovers time travel, and she goes back and doing it, and she starts wreaking every manner of havoc. And so then Merlin has to chase her throughout time and that set things right. Cool. <laughs> that would be cool. It could get us to some cool locations too. Oh yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. All right. Well, this has been an amazing episode with the Sword That's and Stone awesome. and you the equally great. amazing Doc Kruger, who I love to <laughs> death. Um, Larry, what we got up next week? Next week is Bambi. Bambi. Ooh. We're going to check out Bambi. So, and Doc, I would love to have you back anytime. Seriously. Anytime. This yes, would be fun. Super anytime. fun. And anytime we need to have somebody that is a... Um, 
medieval specialist we know who to go to. So, and you know, when you guys start moving forward in Disney, yeah. oh, you got stuff, you got stuff, Larry. We need to talk about soul. Oh, oh my gosh, we can't, not, not here. Um, yeah. All right, so folks. Uh, you can find us on our Facebook fan page. You can send us an email to once upon a Disney podcast at gmail.com uh, where we are on Twitter. Uh, Andy is at Andy Redwine. Uh, I am at Larry Brenner six. Uh, and uh, yeah, please rate and review us on, uh, on Apple podcasts it, or, or whatever podcast service you use. It really does help other people to find us. Yes, and we have gotten a lot of really great response on our um, nice. great reviews, which is really great. So yeah, our, our Facebook's Once Upon a Disney Podcast, and check us out there. And man, this has been great. Go pick me up for this uh, Saturday afternoon here, or wherever you're listening. So Thank you all for having me. Yeah, so until next time, fans, we'll see you real soon. See you real soon. <laughs>